and welcome to the Deeply Rooted Podcast. We are here to root deep in Scripture so that we might lead lives of unshakable faith. I'm Ben Jacobson. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Lutheran Church in Fargo, North Dakota, and I am joined today by my colleague, Pastor Stephen Dunkel. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to have you on today. Great to we be here. are doing something special today. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a break from what we've been doing for the past weeks, which has been walking through the story of Scripture, and we're going to pause on a word that we came across a few weeks ago on our Deeply Rooted podcast. We read, we were reading in Numbers, uh, chapters 12 through 14. This was in the episode called The Spies. Uh, And we came across this word Nephilim. And we sort of just passed over it because we had lots of other stuff that we were trying to get at. But I think it's an important word for us to look at, to explore, to think about. And so we're going to do that today. Nephilim often translated as Giants. 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 So as we're thinking about things that are very big, Stephen, what's something that you've seen that's really big that's put you in a state of awe? My wife and I recently went to the Grand Canyon about a month or two before our baby was born, a bit of a baby moon, and the Grand Canyon, everyone says this, but it's so much bigger in person. You see the photo and it looks impressive, but then you're standing there in the rim and your depth perception kicks in. And wow, what does a canyon look like a mile away? The immensity of it, the grandeur of it. I've heard it described as sublime. Sublime. What 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 did you feel when you looked at something that massive? I felt Myself as small, yeah. and my God as big. Yeah. And I wonder why it is that pictures never do something like the Grand Canyon justice. It just doesn't. I haven't. I was there once when I was in high school, and I, I remember thinking, no picture is ever going to capture this. And that's maybe the way, maybe the way that it's supposed to be. Some things have mm. to be experienced instead of photographed. So we're going to experience uh, the Nephilim today. And uh, I'm going to read... We won't photograph them, though. I don't think we have any photographs of them. Uh, You can Google that, but I don't think we do. And so this word comes up twice in Scripture. Mm -hmm. I believe I'm right there. And in the first place is in Genesis, the sixth chapter. And I'm going to read that to you. We're going to start with verse... One, and we'll go to verse four. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. And then we see the word Nephilim again in Numbers chapter 
13. And I'll read those verses as well. This is 32 and 33. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All of the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Hmm. What are we to make of this? Let's maybe start with with uh, the word itself. Actually, I just have to pause for a second. I'm thinking about, so that Numbers chapter is when, when uh, the Israelites send some people ahead to, to look at their who uh, their foes that yeah. they're going to be encountering, right? And I, when, I, when I read that, I was thinking about when I played football in high school, we'd pull up, you know, you'd pull up in the bus and you'd, mm-hmm. you'd start looking at the other team they're huge. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of that freshmen same and sophomores here, <laughs> yeah. and they're a full team of you know six foot five seniors. Yeah, exactly. They're all two hundred and eighty pounds. Exactly. So it feels sort of like that moment of oh, we're up against something much bigger than than us. But let's yeah, let's look at that word nephilim. Where does that? What does it mean? What is, where does it come from? What? Uh... Yeah, I was really excited when you asked me to speak on this one word nephilim and have this conversation with you. I love to read scripture in large chunks. I love to read a whole book at a time if Mm -hmm. I can. And uh, so really my preferred method of scripture is just big chunks at a time, at least a full chapter. But also my background in school is ancient languages specifically. Mm. And so on the flip side, just digging into one word and doing a word study is also a joy of mine. So they might be opposites, but they're also my two passions. Mm. So this is really fun. Now this word Nephilim, it's only twice in the Hebrew Bible. We don't have a lot of biblical Hebrew lying around other than the Bible. Mm. So there's not a lot of Hebrew to compare this word to. Now, you might think, oh, we'll just pull up a dictionary. Well, these dictionaries, they're made by scholars today. It's not like the Bible came with an ancient dictionary written by native speakers of this language. So when we look at a word that doesn't occur very often, that maybe seems mysterious, we have to look at the language that surrounds this language. We have to look at the writings that surround Mm -hmm. this writing. And so one of the first places we go is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so right off the bat, we've got this very ancient Greek Old Testament that was written, it was translated well before Jesus Um, came onto the earth, the incarnation with that first Christmas. This is about 200 BC and following. And they simply translate the word Nephilim as giants. So then we go back and we say, oh, well, how is this word giants? And we look at, there's a language that's Hebrew adjacent, very similar, called Aramaic. And they've got this word Nephilim with an N at the end, and it means giants. Hmm. And that would be called a cognate, right? Yeah, it's a cognate. Now, some people, they'll take the Hebrew word nafal, which means to fall, and say, oh, maybe it means the fallen ones, but that doesn't quite work work grammatically. It'd be a passive in that case, like the fallen upon ones, and it doesn't quite fit. When you look at nephilim, well, that sure fits. Now, why an N instead of the M? Well, that's the plural. So in English, we got this plural S, so we're pastors. Mm -hmm. 
In Hebrew, the plural was I am. We'd be pastorim. In Aramaic, it's an I-N, pastorine. So Nephilim, giants in Aramaic. Nephilim, that sure looks like it's giants. Mm. So what, what we're trying to do here, or what scholars try to do, is, is get as close to the word as possible. Yeah. Meaning, because we don't, we don't speak the language, mm-hmm. let's get as close to the people who did speak the language. Exactly. Right? So those, we want to go back in time. Those translators who translated the Septuagint would have had a lot more knowledge yeah. of that of Hebrew, Aramaic than we have. Yep. Okay, so that's that's sort of the strategy here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, they knew it, they read it, they spoke it, and they're a lot closer to the text in terms of time. So that's where the word so they they use the translation giants. Yeah. Gigantes. Gigantes. Yep. So what do we make of that? Yeah. Well, we've got these giants roaming about. And Genesis 6 says that they were roaming about before the flood and also afterwards. So that asks some questions. Well, if the flood wiped out all of these Nephilim, then why are they also around afterwards? Where did these giants come from? And then you've got this really strange passage about how it's somehow connected with the sons of God and the daughters of men. And to that, we go to the Septuagint too. And this phrase, sons of God, the way the Septuagint, this old Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this phrase, they use the word angels, Hmm. angelos. And so this phrase, sons of God, is angels. And then you have this phrase, daughters of humans, as, well, humans. Mm -hmm. And that seems really strange. Because angels are spiritual beings, humans are obviously physical beings, and angels, not having physical bodies, they don't have offspring. They don't have children, so they wouldn't have giant offspring. They wouldn't have any offspring. Mm -hmm. And so that's really one of the first mysteries in the text is, where in the world did these giants come from? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to be a giant, Mm -hmm. according to the Bible? Mm -hmm. So what what are some of the interpretations about where they come from. Yeah. Well, there are three views. And the first view would be actually one that uh, we sometimes miss out on as modern readers because we don't live in this world. But there's a pagan ritual that involves a man, a woman, and the mask of a pagan god. And we'll let you fill in the blanks there. Uh, We won't describe the ritual. But the offspring of that ritual ritual is considered to be one-third divine. So that has three parents, the man, the woman, and the pagan god, embodied by that mask and the person wearing it. And so we've got a lot of examples of that if you read ancient mythology. So if you're a fan of Greek myths, you've got Perseus and Theseus are both one-third god, and they're these warriors, right? They slay the Minotaur, they slay Medusa, they've got this role as these war heroes. If you like ancient Mesopotamian myths, you've got Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 1. This is lines 50 through 53, if you're into that. says, The mighty Gilgamesh, perfect in strength, splendid in form, terror of humankind, two-thirds of him is God, one-third of him is human. Now you say, why two-thirds? Well, they thought that 
pagan kings were gods too. Mm-hmm. So you've got a human parent who's a pagan god. You've got uh, another human parent who's just human. And then you've got this mask, this pagan god that's the third parent. And so these giants, they're really offspring of a pagan ritual. They have two human parents, but they also have these quote-unquote sons of God, these fallen angels involved. So that's view one. So what 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 should yeah. we, what does that mean or who who is this what the the people who were looking at these nephilim believed? It sure seems like it. Okay. That's probably um the most reliable view. And one of the reasons we say that is Irenaeus, he's one of the early church fathers. And so what that means is Jesus' disciple John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he had a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp had a disciple named Irenaeus. So this is John's spiritual grandson. He writes about this, and he says this is what's going on here. Is This is pagan ritual, and it's producing these clans of people, these giant clans, who are thoroughly um, embedded in... Um, really the worship of and even um, seeing themselves as children of demons. So this is something that, as we look at this interpretation, this isn't a, a view that we would take. So we would not engage in pagan rituals. Right. Absolutely not. Um, but we as Christians certainly believe in a spiritual realm. The Bible yes. asks that of us to believe in angels and to believe in demons. So the idea that a fallen angel could be involved um, in raising up warriors against God's people really does make sense. Mm. Now, what doesn't make sense, and this goes into the second view, would be the idea that this fallen angel was somehow able to physically, apart from any other agent, create offspring uh, with one human. Uh, That's just not how biology works. That's not how the spiritual realm and the physical realm interact. And that's why the virgin birth is so significant. If this was something that was prevalent in their day, in their culture, that, oh yeah, spiritual beings can have offspring with physical beings, then Christmas wouldn't be a surprise. Mm-hmm. Christmas is a shock. It's a huge surprise. Mm-hmm. So certainly we as Christians can understand um, that pagan rituals existed, mm-hmm. that they were wrong, mm-hmm. and that they did result in whole groups of people that worshipped and really saw themselves as in the lineage of demons. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's one view. Yep. And there are two more. Yeah, there are two more. Okay. So these will go a little faster because I think we can explain them in light of this first view, which is more of a surprise to us as modern readers. So the second view is probably what comes to us most naturally as modern readers. And that would be to think that an angel and a human had offspring. And we've explained why that doesn't work. In fact, Augustine, who he is a church father, he's writing in the fourth century, great scholar of scripture and those who came before him, one of the things he didn't have is knowledge of pagan rituals. This is after the Roman world had become officially Christian. A lot of this history had been lost. Mm -hmm. And he said, this passage just doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. because the second view, it doesn't work. 
And he didn't have the first view. That had been lost to history at the time. So he proposed a third view. He calls it the Sethite hypothesis, that the sons of God would be the line of Seth, that the daughters of man would be the line of Cain, and that this is intermarriage. So let's go back. Yeah. Who is Seth and who is Cain? Yeah, great question. So they're children of Adam and Eve, and Cain killed his brother Abel. He was the first uh, of their children. He killed the, their second son, and so God gave them a third son, Seth. And so Seth, in a way, is a type of um, a foreshadow, in a way, of Christ, because Abel, who gives this good sacrifice to God mm-hmm. um, and who dies— um, then Seth is given back to them, mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's this resurrection of sorts of Abel in this person of Seth. And so Seth's line is seen as the line that is following God, although it's more complex than that as we get into these actual messy people. And Cain is seen as the line of those who are not following God. Mm-hmm. And again, it's more complex than that because we're dealing with messy people. Yes. So that's Augustine's view. And it's a very good view if you don't have understanding of these pagan rituals. Mm -hmm. If Augustine did have this context, would he have gone another way? We can't know for sure. But Irenaeus being closer to this and being this direct spiritual grandson of John and saying this is what the apostles taught, it seems to be that this first view is very reliable. The second view, maybe our straightforward modern reading, just doesn't work, Mm -hmm. probably. And then this third view, the Sethite hypothesis, well, it would work, but it maybe doesn't explain enough. And when we have this ancient context, a lot of things start to click. So essentially, a good view might be that the Nephilim were pagan idol worshipers. Mm-hmm. And were they giants? Well, yes, they're called giants, but it's a little tricky, right? Because this word giants, and we were chatting before about this, in the ancient world, this word giant, it meant something more like tyrant. Mm. These were violent, warring heroes. And so you look at someone like Goliath. He's not a giant because he's tall. He's tall because he's a giant. You see all this bronze armor on him? Well, those reading the text would know this is well beyond the Bronze Age. He's wearing this ancient armor. And that's a cue to the reader to think back to these ancient warriors of old, these quote-unquote men of renown, as Genesis 6 says. They're these ancient war heroes from these pagan rituals. He's like the last of the giants. Sure. At least his family, because we see that he's got brothers and others in his family. And David and his family actually slay all of the giants. So, so one of these, the Nephilim are these big, giant warriors that obviously put fear into the hearts of, of the people who come to face them. Yeah. And yep. Goliath would be a fantastic example mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, everyone's terrified of him. Yep. So what do we, what, so if that's who the Nephilim are, how does understanding this one word help us to understand scripture? What insights does it give us into the bigger story of scripture? Oh, that's a great question. Well, Mike talked about how Numbers 13, that's Pastor Mike in a few episodes ago, talked about in Numbers 13 that this is a bad report. 
when the spies said, there are Nephilim in the land. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise that there are giants in the land, that pagan rituals have returned. And yes, it's not the same Nephilim as before the flood. Those have been wiped out, but these rituals are continuing. Now there are these giant clans. The scripture talks about the Anakites, the Amorites, the Rephaites, the Emites. These are these giant clans. These people who are committed to worshiping these pagan gods and specifically taking that worship into um, violence, right? Into massacring other peoples Mm -hmm. and taking what they want by force. Mm -hmm. And so God's people, they're called to wipe out the giant clans. Now, there are a few ways you can go about this. One is you can go to war and you can use weapons of war to kill the giants. And we see examples of this in scripture. But also there are more subtle ways to wipe out a giant clan. When the scriptures talk about wipe out every, let's say, Anakite, well, there are two ways to do that. One is, yes, you can go to war and you can use weapons to wipe them out. But the second way is you can convince them to leave the Anakite ways and to join another tribe. These aren't ethnic designations. When you look at what it means to be an Israelite, the high priest Phineas is a black African. The um, mighty man of David, the husband of Bathsheba, he's called Uriah the Hittite. Mm-hmm. So he's an Israelite whose name is Uriah the Hittite. He's clearly ethnically a Hittite, but he mm-hmm. left his Hittite ways. He joined Israel. You've got Rahab in the story of Jericho at the beginning of Joshua, who's a Canaanite, but she becomes an Israelite. So when we hear these texts about wipe out everyone, this word Nephilim accuses us into something bigger. Mm. Accuses us into the fact that God is wiping out pagan rituals. He's wiping out the worship of fallen angels. He's wiping out these practices of violence that are making everyone in the world fearful and unsafe. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that you may feel small when you look at these giants and you say, wow, their God looks so big. Mm -hmm. He says, no, our God, (laughs) Yahweh, the true God, Mm -hmm. is bigger. Mm. And so as we move into the New Testament, we see something that really, I think, brings it all into focus. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Mm. Ephesians 6.12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly realms. What if this word giants actually cues us in to a larger story that helps us understand the violence in the Old Testament? That it's not simply God saying, oh, the children of Abraham are more valuable than the children of Moab. Maybe it's that God wants all people. And I say the maybe a bit facetiously, because right. the scriptures tell us this is true. Yeah, all want nations. all people to come to repentance and to come to faith in the one true God. 
And while the Bible doesn't describe or instruct us in these pagan rituals, why would it? This isn't a pagan manual. This is the Christian scriptures. Mm-hmm. That by understanding that this happened, we understand that this warfare isn't primarily against flesh and blood. This warfare is primarily against these fallen angels, these evil forces that would want to pull us away from the worship of the one true God. This has been a deep dive into a word. And I wonder if complicated, lots of layers of interpretation, uh, really heady stuff and interesting stuff. And I'm really grateful for your perspective on this. I wonder if just a really simple way for us to engage this word is to think about the fact that as people of faith, we probably all have Nephilim in our lives. Um, And I don't mean giants who are nine feet tall, but things that seem so big in front of us that that we can't overcome ourselves. Um, Things that put fear into our hearts that, that make us trust God less or and and so in that way and in that sense i wonder if reading this and thinking about who the nephilim are might help us to understand that that god is, god can overcome all of those things in our lives too um just from a very practical standpoint absolutely as pastor mike said this was a bad report when they felt like grasshoppers Giants may seem big, but giants fall. Hmm. And whatever evil forces are against us, our God is for us. This isn't Star Wars. We're light and dark balance. No. Light dispels the darkness every time. Yeah. When we look at sin and death and grief and loss and all the things that, that come to us in life, can make you feel a little bit maybe not like a grasshopper but pretty small pretty small so it's amazing to know that we have a god that is big that is bigger than even the biggest giants that you and i face so thank you uh stephen for for helping us to understand this strange and mysterious word a little bit more uh folks remember to like subscribe to share to join us again Uh, next week as we continue our journey through Scripture in this Deeply Rooted podcast. And in the meantime, stay deeply rooted.